All right. Fantastic. Um, well, a big welcome to church again as well from me this morning. It's um, great to have some visitors with us, and it's also great to have uh, some regular folk as well. Um, with uh, 50% of Pasadena vaccinated now, a super exciting stat that came out this week, Pasadena moved into yellow tier, um, and it feels exciting, doesn't it? It feels a little bit like life is just beginning to return to some sort of sense of normality. Um, and if you wanted any sort of proof that that is happening, that very long and kind of wiggly thing called the 210 that we used to run up and down at like 70 miles an hour in our cars has now returned to its natural state as parking lot for Pasadena, right? Life is beginning to feel a little bit more like it wants did. And because it's like that, it gives us these opportunities to think about the future. Like, what do we want the future to look like? How do we want to be churches across the Vintage Network? We're talking a lot at the moment as leaders about what does it look like to create churches into the future, which are kingdom churches, churches that look and feel like the Jesus, that are full of the Holy Spirit, that change lives and don't just entertain people on a Sunday morning. And so um, I'm sure in your life, you're thinking about the future. We too are thinking about the future. And so we're going to do that together by spending eight weeks in the book of Nehemiah. I think at least 10 times today I'll probably get it wrong and call it Nehemiah, but that's kind of, it's the one word in the English dictionary where English people get it wrong. Just, just to saying, okay, there is at least one word, okay, and it is Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, I think, okay. So in order to get into Nehemiah, we're going to have to do a lot of history in a very short period of time, okay, so we're going to launch through the whole of the Old Testament in about two minutes, okay. Bear with me, okay. So if you go back to Moses, God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and out into the promised land. And if you're about Pharaoh and all of the plagues and things that happen, Moses leads the people out and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And whilst they're there, they receive the law, which comes in the form of like the Ten Commandments and things like that. But they also receive the, the worshipping life of the community, which is centered around the Ark of the Covenant, if you think about that wooden box thing, and also the tabernacle, this big tent where the people worship. Now, at the end of the 40 years, it's not actually Moses who leads the people into the promised land. That privilege goes to Joshua, and that happens in about kind of 1406 BC. So 1400 years before Christ comes along, and Joshua leads the people into what is today modern-day Israel and that kind of area. Now, whilst they are there in that land, uh, they get their first king. They ask for a king, and they get Saul, and that doesn't go very well. They get their second king, who's David, and that goes just a little bit better, which we talked about David last week. And then, it actually, it's Solomon who becomes king, and he builds, on God's instructions, the temple, right? This huge, magnificent, wonderful building which becomes God's house in the middle of Jerusalem where the people would come, where his presence would dwell, where people could worship and pray together. Now, that temple, the first temple, which we talk about a lot, actually only lasted about 20 years before it was first damaged. Pharaoh walked into uh, Jerusalem uh, only about kind of probably about 979 BC, and big damage happened to the temple. And for a long time, the temple got damaged, it got raided, it got repaired, it got raided, it got repaired. And at the same time as all that's going on, the kingship, the kind of, the, the leadership of Israel starts to take like a really big nosedive. Things go very, very badly wrong. So much so that in 700, oh, sorry, 930 BC, the 10 northern tribes of, of Israel split away and they become known as Israel and the two southern tribes split away and they become known as Judah and that's where Jerusalem is. And the leadership and the context and the idolatry and the sin in the nation just builds up and builds up and it continues to go really bad through to about 722 BC when the northern tribes are taken off into captivity by the big uh, northern superpower, 
and the Assyrians. Now the southern, the little two tribes in the south, they last just a little bit longer. They get to 586 BC before they too are conquered by the Babylonians, right? You know that story, Daniel and the lion's den, all those kind of things, King Nebuchadnezzar, that happens. Now I tell you all that because when you conquer a nation in this era, the way that you do it to stop it rebelling, the way that you do it to stop it rising up and getting back at you is you do a number of things. The first thing you do is you remove the best of the land the cities, you damage the cities. The second thing you do is you remove the religion. You go straight to the heart of worship so that there's no place to worship and the local cultures and and worship break down. And then the final thing you do is you remove or you take into captivity the wealthy and the powerful leaders of the community so that there isn't that kind of community building to be able to rise up again. And that is exactly what happens to Israel. And so for a really long period from kind of 586 BC onwards, um, that is how it looks on the earth. Exile, destruction, God's people scattered, carried away into captivity, except for a little tiny remnant of the poor who were left in Jerusalem. That is most of the Old Testament. That is the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, except for a little tiny bit which happens at the end. Three guys right at the end of the Old Testament that we need to know about. The first one is a guy called Zerubbabel, basically the best name in the whole Bible, right? By a long way, Zerubbabel. That's something about tennis, isn't there? And that is a joke anyway. Anyway, he comes along um, and he gets permission from King Cyrus in 537 BC to go back and to start to build a second temple. And it kind of goes well for a while and then they run into basically what looks like political zoning issues. It's basically like trying to build something in Pasadena. It was that hard. And so they try, it goes wrong. Eventually though, under King Darius, they finish the second temple. So much so that in 458 BC, so we're like 450 years before Christ comes, the the priest Ezra, is able to return to Jerusalem, restart this whole sacrificial, ceremonial, worshipping life of the community. Everything looks good again. Or does it? That's where we get to Nehemiah. Okay, there's the whole of the Old Testament. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. Who's reading it? Arlene's reading it. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have that in your Bibles or devices, feel free to have that. In the month of Kislev, the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the provenance, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps this covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments? Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites remember, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. 
Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive and your prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you for reading that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for a long history of your involvement in the world. And we're so grateful that we join in this lineage of faith. And so this morning, as we launch into the book of Nehemiah, would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our minds? Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's 445 BC by this point in our, our history lesson. Uh, Artaxerxes has been king of what is now a pretty crumbling empire called Persia. And in his court is this guy, not a priest, not a prophet, not a preacher, but an administrator, a senior civil servant, and a guy called uh, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a city called Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. It's in modern-day Iran. And whilst he's there, a friend, a brother of, in God, comes to see him, a guy called Hanani, and they have a conversation. The conversation may have gone something like this. Hey, how's the new city going? How's the temple? How's this amazing worship of God going on and prayer in the temple? Is everybody like worshiping and having a wonderful time? And the answer comes back like, no. Everything is going wrong. And specifically, the news that's received is that the walls are broken down and the gates are burned. And that's really significant. If you know anything about old cities, actually the walls and the gates, they were like the army that surrounded the city. If you didn't have walls, if you didn't have gates, then basically any marauding set of bandits, any army could just walk straight into the city, destroy it, cause all sorts of chaos. And so when Nehemiah hears this news, actually he recognizes immediately, this is really serious. This project restart, this project rebuild, the place of God's presence in Jerusalem is all in tatters again. And so we're going to think over the next weeks, what is it about Nehemiah who goes through this whole process of rebuilding, which is so important, it's so significant? What is it about his character? What is it about him as a leader that seems to matter so much? And today we're going to start with two things. The first is, is that Nehemiah is a guy of passion. And the second thing is that Nehemiah is a guy of prayer. So, little question, little shout out. We've been doing them a lot this morning already. What are you passionate about? Okay, shout out, anything. We had the answer Xbox about two weeks ago, I think. I did, couldn't hear anything. Anyone else? Your family. Awesome. Anything else? No, couldn't hear anything. <laughs> anything else? <laughs> I'm sure someone... Worship, thank you. Awesome. Okay, well, unlike that sort of thing over there, um, I... 
I have been for a very long time a supporter of a really good Premier League team, uh, one called uh, Liverpool. Okay, um, they they have been a love and a source of great concern and pain over 30 years. Um, when you are passionate about something, you feel it, right? If you're passionate about your family, if you're passionate about worship, even if you're passionate about sports team, when the thing is going really well, right? You feel excited, you feel joyful, you feel full of life, and when the thing goes really badly, you feel awful, right? So being a Liverpool fan for the last 30 years, there have been moments that have looked like this moment. If you can see it on the screen. And if you can see it, euphoria, different generations, backgrounds, creeds, and colours—all shouting and screaming and singing. This was actually taken after the Champions League final two years ago, when Liverpool were the best team in Europe, and it was very exciting, and we were all very, very excited about it.、Um, but if I'm honest, most of the last 30 years has looked more like this second photo: <laughs> sadness, tears, mourning, grief. That's what it's kind of felt like. You know, when we are passionate about something, we go through the full range of things. And whether or not you have any interest in the Premier League whatsoever, whoever your sports team is, if you are passionate about it, you probably know what it means to feel both the highs and the extreme lows, right? That's how that's how it goes.、Um, the very famous manager of Liverpool football team from about 50 years ago, a guy called Bill Shankly, he wrote this. He said, "The word fanatic has been used many times of our fans." I think it's more than fanaticism. It's a religion to them. The thousands who come here to watch the games come to worship. It's a sort of a shrine. You know, when we're passionate about something, it just kind of comes out of us, don't you? You don't have to think about whether you're going to talk about it. Doesn't you don't have to think about who you're going to talk to about it. It just bubbles up in our very being. Now Nehemiah is clearly a very passionate guy, and Nehemiah, it seems, is passionate about three things. The first thing is is that Nehemiah is passionate about God, the God Almighty, the one who flung the stars into space, the one who chose the people of Israel, the one who cares and loves and is involved in the world. Nehemiah is passionate about his fame his, and his name on the earth. The second thing Nehemiah seems to be passionate about is he is passionate about God's house, about the place of worship. About the place of prayer, about the corporate nature of what it means to be a people together, and the third thing that we read Nehemiah is passionate about is he is passionate about this sense of brotherhood, this sense of being together as the people of God on the earth. In verse two, when this guy Hanani arrives, actually he's called a brother. Now he probably isn't actually a brother. He's probably just, you know, a friend or something like that. But there's this sense from Nehemiah that we are called to be people together. And I wonder this morning, are we passionate about the things that God is passionate about? Are we passionate about God Himself and His name? Are we passionate about His church, His bride on the earth? And are we passionate about each other, even the ones who support Manchester United? Are we passionate about God's people? Because if we are, there should be so much that we want to celebrate on one side. And there should be things that concern us. There should be things that kind of stir up our heart. You know,、we've, we're reading stats all the time at the moment, aren't we? That during this last pandemic, so so many young people have cut ties with the church, have walked away. If you look outside of the United States, you know, Open Doors, who are an amazing organisation, they will tell you that over the last year, there, or that there currently are 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians were killed last year for their faith. 
4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked last year. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Like, do, do we care? Does it matter? Does it mean anything to be brothers and sisters with, of Christ with people all over the world? You know, when, when Laura and I first um, felt called to the city of Pasadena, I have to be very honest that we didn't know very much about it. In fact, I probably couldn't have even found it on a map. But we just knew that God miraculously, astonishingly, had called us from five and a half thousand miles away to move to this city. And when we moved, we knew that God had called us, not just because of the prophetic words, but because when we arrived, there was this incredible sense in us of passion. Passion for God's name and for his fame and for the city as a whole, not just the church, but actually for the people of the city. Um, in the week that was leading up to Easter, I had a few hours um, spare, and so I went up uh, to the top of Sierra Madre, which is up there, um, to a retreat center, and I looked out. It was a very gray morning, just like this, and as I looked out to the left-hand side from where I was standing, right high up at the base of the mountain, I could see Arcadia, um, Sierra Madre, Monrovia, all just shrouded in darkness and gray and mist. But as I look to the right-hand side, and I've got a picture of it, I don't know if you, how well you'll be able to see it. Yeah, it's hard to see on there. But in the distance, I could see Pasadena. And you can just see it across the bottom. It's completely lit up in sunshine. And it reminded me of the prophetic words that we have received so many times in this church, that we are called to be a people who bring the good news of Jesus to bear, not just in our churches, but in our city in our businesses, to bring the good news of Jesus to bear in the relationships we have, in the, in the families that we represent. That God has got a call on our church to bring the good news of Jesus. And it reminded me that I have a passion, I have a calling to live out that kind of life on the earth. And I feel like that's an incredible blessing, right? You know, I said at the beginning, as churches, we're at the moment trying to figure out what does the future of church even look like anymore? And on one hand, it can feel scary. We look at the past and we think, well, the past's gone. We're not sure we're going back there anymore. There must be something new of the kingdom that we're yet to explore. And as I thought about this, as I prayed about what it means to be a passionate person, a passionate Christian in Pasadena, that's a lot of peas. <laughs> what I started to realize is that this is also, as well as a hard moment, it's a moment of incredible opportunity to be a Christian on earth today. You know, the last uh, global pandemic happened in 1918. We don't read about it very much because it, got, was like, it played second on the news to the First World War. But in 1918, about 50 million people died across the world. It was an influenza pandemic. And documented history tells us at the end of the influenza pandemic, Christians and other leaders said, what is the future going to hold? What is Christianity going to hold? What is civilization going to hold? Are people going to walk away from faith? Is there going to be a breakdown of our economies and things? And what happened? The roaring 20s is what happened. It was exciting. I lived in England, so I wasn't even born by about 50 years. But, um, but it was an exciting moment to be alive. Huge explosion happened of creativity, of culture. People came to faith in big numbers in the 1920s. It was an exciting time to be alive. 500 years ago, we saw the first major communications revolution. Some German people and some British people decided that it would be a really good idea if they could get the Bible into the hands of the people in their own language. And so they invented this little thing called the printing press. And it transformed the known world as news could travel really fast around the place. 
We are currently in the next major communications revolution. We are in the middle of a digital revolution. We've seen over the last year the incredible ways that everything about how we communicate is different. Nobody knew anything about Zoom a year ago, and now everybody knows everything about Zoom. Right now, in this moment, we are preaching, I am preaching to you, but I'm also preaching to people who are all over the world. Like We could not have even dreamt of that a few years ago. Like This is an incredible and exciting moment to be alive. Are you passionate about God's name? Are you passionate about God's church? Are you passionate about God's people on the earth? You know, there's all these questions, aren't there? Why do churches die? Why do, why do things not work out? And we, sometimes we say, well, you know, if that church had better music or if that church had, you know, bigger smiles on their faces or if that church served better coffee or if that church didn't do liturgy in that way, then they would be all right. As far as I can see, the thing that kills churches is very simple. It's when passion runs out. You know, the thing that kills churches is when religion sets in, when the church becomes optional, when the church becomes just peripheral to our beings, when it becomes disconnected from the world around us, when it just becomes religion, that's when so often churches died. C.S. Lewis famously in the Screwtape Letters, he said, a moderated religion is as good to us, he's speaking on behalf of the devil, as no religion at all and more amusing. Is God this morning your first love? Does he get your best? Does he get your highest and your most passionate praises or does he get the leftovers when everything else is done? But I also wonder this morning, like, where are your passion levels? You know, some of us probably arrived this morning and we're like, hey, I'm up for some worship, I'm going to pray, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. But if we're honest, maybe just a few of us didn't arrive in that state today. We had a great conversation in the office a few weeks ago. And it said, isn't it interesting that right now it feels like there's a whole bunch of that's obviously a theological term when we say that. But it, it does feel that, doesn't it, a little bit right now. We can see the future. We can get excited about summer plans, about vacations, about what's going to happen in the next year. But also, we can find ourselves just struggling to get excited. Well, do you notice when Nehemiah starts his journey of passion? Nehemiah actually starts his journey of passion in grief. For days and days we read that Nehemiah mourned, he cried, he called out to the Lord. And I wonder if we have been through that grief cycle yet for all that we've gone in the last year. Rick Warren, who's a famous pastor, he says that as far as he can see, the next year is going to be a year of grief on the earth. I thought, when I heard that, I thought, that's a little bit pessimistic, Rick. But actually what he was pointing out is that for so many of us, we have yet to deal with the events of the last year, haven't we? You know, we've yet to mourn the, the weddings, the funerals that we weren't able to attend. We've yet to deal with the fact of the pressures on family life and everything that we've gone through. And not just for mothers, you've had to be homeschoolers and things like that. Nehemiah is not someone who is English who just says that was sad and moves on. Actually, he grieves. He cries. He pours out his heart. And I wonder if, you know, some of us this morning, if we find ourselves a bit short of passion, if we find ourselves a bit lost, feeling a little bit blur, I wonder, have we grieved? Have we gone through that process of coming before the Lord with our sadness, with our pain, with the things that have hurt us over the last year? 
Because I feel like until we do, we may struggle to, to receive from the Lord the passions, the excitement, the joy again that we need for the next stage of this adventure that we're all on. So Nehemiah was a man of passion. But Nehemiah was also, amazingly, a man of prayer. Now, as far as we can see, right, um, Nehemiah was an incredibly powerful and incredibly capable leader. Um, it says in verse 12, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Now, on first glance, that sounds like bartender or like butler to the king. And let's be honest, unless you're John Lewis on Alpha at the moment or something like that, it's not like the most exciting job in the world. But actually, the cupbearer was really, really important in early society. If you wanted to get rid of a king of an old civilization, the fastest and the best way to get rid of the king was to poison him. You could slip a little bit of something into the wine, a little bit of something into the food, and then it was all over. So the cupbearer had this amazing job. Their job was to taste all the food and to drink all the wine before the king could get hold of it to make sure that he didn't die first. But what that meant was, it meant that the cupbearer had huge responsibility and huge authority. It meant that they were highly motivated to help the king make good decisions, right? Because you see, if the king made good decisions, it wasn't very likely that he would get poisoned and the cupbearer would die. But if he didn't help the king make good decisions and the king made really bad decisions, which were unpopular, and other people therefore tried to kill him, the cupbearer would die. Okay, so nobody in the kingdom was more motivated to make sure that right decisions were made than the cupbearer. And so cupbearers were really highly esteemed in early nations. They were high-ranking civil servants who were with the king at all times. And we also read about Nehemiah that he was an activist. Like he was one of those guys who see a problem, run at the problem. Some of us uh, see a problem, run away from the problem. Others of us uh, see a problem, don't think, off we go, right? You can debate later which one of those you might fall into, right? Nehemiah was an activist. He was a guy who was hugely capable, and he sees this huge problem in front of him, but yet, did you notice what it is that Nehemiah does? Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah prays. You know, I'm an activist. When I see a problem, I'm like, I am all in. Let me at it. I will use all my strength. I will use my intelligence. I will use everything I have, and I will beat the problem. Nehemiah teaches us this the most important lesson that we may ever learn, that prayer matters. Prayer matters. You know, I've come to realize so much about the last year that if we are to see God's kingdom come in Pasadena, if we are to see lives transformed, if we are to see families and family lines rewritten, you know, if we are to see the poor fed, if we are to see you know, all sorts of institutions changed, then guess what? We are going to need a power that we don't have. We are going to need abilities that we don't have. We're going to need opportunities that we don't have. Just being a passionate like person may not be enough for this adventure. You know, I think, wouldn't it be nice if we could just be like an NFL team where we just get super excited in the locker room and we all charge out into Pasadena with our Bibles in our hands and beat up the heathen until they all know Jesus? You know, wouldn't that be... No, that would be weird. Okay. <laughs> but it doesn't work. We need what we don't have, which is God's power at work in our lives. You know, I don't know about you, but so often I think that prayer becomes a last resort, doesn't it? I think, I'll try everything. I will give everything, I will do everything, and then if I fail, then I will complain to God that he has not fixed it for me already. When actually Nehemiah reminds us that we are supposed to be people of prayer, that prayer comes first. 
but also that prayer is persistent. How easy is it, right, to pray once about something and then give up? How many times in my life have I said, God, you know, Lord, I would love you to do this, and then nothing happens, and so we give up and assume that God never wanted it or something like that? Well, if you read in Revelation chapter 8, actually, you see a very different view of prayer. This is symbolic, but you read about these bowls, these huge bowls which are full of the prayers of the saints in heaven that give off this sweet aroma. And there's almost this sense as you read it that like prayer like fills up in heaven, that prayer overflows in heaven, and as prayer overflows, then things happen on the earth. Now, don't take that too literally, and don't go too far with that, I would suggest. But prayer is not just a one-off hit. Prayer comes from our hearts when we're passionate, and prayer overflows, sometimes in these days, weeks, months to pray for things. Nehemiah says, prayed day and night. For days and days, he just keeps going. But do you notice also Nehemiah's attitude of prayer? There's an incredible understanding of who God is. He talks about God as great and awesome. Now, we use the words great and awesome like, yeah, whatever, in our society. But those words, they carry incredible meaning. They carry incredible passion. They recognize the enormity and the power of who God is. But we also see in Nehemiah this understanding of bowing down before the greatness of God, this sense of fear for who God is, this God who is faithful, who keeps his promises, whose love is greater than our failures, who can do anything. But also finally, do you notice how it is that Nehemiah chooses to pray? Strangely, like weirdly, he starts in a place of confession. Now as far as we can see, Nehemiah was nowhere near Jerusalem. He didn't even know what had happened in the city. But yet he chooses to come on his knees and to repent. Now, I don't know about what it's like in your family this Mothering Sunday, but in my family, we tell our children, when you've done something bad, say sorry. That's repentance, right? Strangely, Nehemiah seems to have a slightly bigger understanding of what repentance does. The language that he uses is almost a direct quote of what happens in 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forget their sin, and I will heal their land. There's such a sense of humility, isn't there, in the way that prayer is in this way. You know, no great move of God has ever been documented to happen on the earth other than when humble, prayerful, often quiet, and often women get down on their knees and they pray. And revivals are documented through this land and lands all over the world to have broken out time and again when people take what it means to be humble and prayerful and repentance significantly. And it's amazing, right? You know, Nehemiah has no direct like, ownership, it seems, in his own actions for what has happened in Jerusalem. But yet, here he is, repenting on behalf of the things that have happened elsewhere in the kingdom. You know, when we look at other churches... You know, do we say, if you just did it properly, everything would be okay? Do we look at other Christians and think, if you just did that, you would grow and everything would be fantastic? Or do we take ownership to pray for our brothers and sisters, to even repent on behalf of the things that we see around the world that aren't right? Do we understand what it means to be one in the body of Christ across the world? 
Because I really believe, you know, a passionate church is primed at this moment to see huge things happen over the years that will follow. I pray that we at Vintage will just get to play a tiny part in the big story of what God wants to do on the earth. But I don't believe it will be just us. I believe we will stand together with our brothers and sisters. But to do that, we are going to have to be people of prayer. We're going to have to be people who just ask and seek the Lord and out of that place to find out what it means to be passionate. You know, I long to see like a vintage Pasadena, a little bit like we did this morning, where when we sing, people believe that we mean it. You know, when we pray, people believe that we have faith for the things that we're praying for. So maybe we need to start, start in a place of grief. Ask the Lord to meet us there, to ask God to put those passions in our hearts and to take it into that place of prayer so that he will transform our lives. Maybe he'll transform our cities. Maybe even that he will transform the United States, transform the world through his power. I don't know about you, that's what I live for. That's what I am passionate about, even more than I am passionate about Liverpool Football Club. Shall we pray?